All right, Spooky South Coast Radio, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz with a big night where we're talking UFOs for the entire show. And one of the things that's coming up, and it happens every year, and we're very excited to help spread the word about it because it's uh, it's definitely one of the preeminent UFO festivals, if not the preeminent UFO festival in the world. I enjoy it. And, well... Normally, when you go to a UFO festival, you're going to enjoy it anyway, because them's your people. My peeps. So, But this is the Roswell UFO Festival. It's coming up in Roswell, New Mexico, July 1st through the 5th, 2010. And if you want to find out more about it, it's roswellufofestival.com. It's also linked up on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. But joining us is the what, – what is what is his official title, Matt, of, of the Roswell UFO? Is he the the host, the – well, I believe he's like a marshal of it. Uh, why don't we ask Peter himself? Right. Peter Robbins joins us uh, on the program, an old friend of the show. Peter, how are you tonight? I'm fine. Hi, Tim. Hi, Matt. Hey, what's happening? Who the hell knows? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm assuming that you must wear many hats at this festival. I, I do. I have to change them fairly frequently. Um, first, I just wanted to say, uh, because it's an easy one to spin around, the website is actually ufofestivalroswell.com. Okay. Yeah. And um, I'm coordinator of the two-day UFO Studies Symposium, but I'll also be running around like mad uh, helping out uh, in different areas of the festival itself, the lighter-hearted aspects. And basically all the big names in ufology are there during the course of the weekend. It's a terrific lineup, and uh, aside from everything that the city is doing, the International uh, UFO Museum and Research Center has its own conference and program of events as well. So you've got uh, two separate series of events running four days. Uh, we're expecting fifteen or 20,000 people. It's really quite an amazing thing to uh, take in. Now, Roswell's not a, a, a populous town to begin with, right? It's a small town feel there. Well, it's a small city. It's about 53,000, but, you know, you wouldn't know it. Um, it's pretty spread out and very laid back. Um but it is um, a wonderful American city, and one that, um, had there never been such a thing as a UFO, would still be worth visiting for a number of natural and cultural reasons. So, I mean, are they? Is this like the big thing for them every year? Is this, uh, or is this kind of one of those things where the locals look around and say, "Oh, here come them darn UFO people again"? Well, um, the the populace, um, you know, feels different ways depending on who they are. Uh, the it's a very um, proactive city. They have a number of festivals, special events, annual things, but far and away this is the big event of the year. And um, uh, with any luck, it should be the four best days for the entire business community. And I think it probably brings more people to the area than any other event that they've ever had uh, sponsored by the city. And um, you do bring up a very interesting point because there are people in town uh, who live there their whole lives, who are proud of the fact that seemingly in their backyard um, something happened 63 years ago of such import, um, of which the implications are so sweeping, that they really take pride in it, and they know that the name of their uh, little city is absolutely uh, a worldwide brand, so to say. There are other people um, who, you know, like so many of us um, Americans, um, have succumbed to the ridicule factor. It's been drummed into our heads since uh, the summer of 1947. I think they find it vaguely embarrassing, 
Um, and also, you know, you've got a, a number of retired veterans there, um, active serving uh, people in the military, um, and, you know, good old-fashioned folks who um, lament a little bit that this event um, is superimposed on, you know, uh, far and away the most important American holiday, and why can't they have an old-fashioned Fourth uh, of July like everyone else? And, of course, the answer to that is an accident of history. That thing, whatever it was, crashed on the plains of St. Augustine, um, you know, a few days before uh, Roswell, although we uh, a few days before the 4th, although we don't know the exact day. And and for those who have attended in the past, and, and Matt Moniz has told us stories from when he's been there, and we've seen the photos on the websites and everything, I mean, it just seems like it's a great atmosphere. It seems like it's a, a, a party. Oh, it's a, fu- a lot of fun. But yes, it same, is. But at the same time, it's a great opportunity for all these great minds to get together, share yeah. the knowledge that they have, and, and learn more amongst themselves. Well, you, you said it just right, Tim. Um, I would have to describe it as a culturally schizophrenic event. <laughs> you have uh, an extremely uh, focused and serious study conference, and as you guys know, every single speaker this year will be coming at um, the subject of Roswell specifically from their area of specialty research. So it will be quite a microcosm. In the past, we've had more general symposia, and um, that's great, too. I think this year the museum will have a more you know, um, UFO-oriented one, but not Roswell-oriented one. And, of course, around this are dozens and dozens of events, many of them kid-friendly, family-friendly, some of them purely entertaining. Uh, one of the things that the city has done has uh, reached a business agreement with Marvel Comics, and a number of actors come to town in these extraordinary costumes of you know, major superheroes, and they do reading workshops for kids. Um, there are any number of costume contests, uh, Miss Roswell contest. Um, there's going to be a um, uh, a series of um, wonderful concerts, everything from Tex-Mex to uh, oldies and Motown. Um, you know, just one thing after uh, another. The visitors and convention center is open literally from dawn to dark. Has all kinds of exhibits. Um, there is now a Roswell UFO Hall of Fame. And we have set it up very much like, you know, the Baseball or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And there will be three new inductees uh, brought in this year, um, some deceased from the original days, some who have contributed to our knowledge of it since. And um, I'm right now working on the text uh, that will be given to uh, honor these people. And the person who will be doing the honoring this year is the son of last year's honoree, um, Jesse Marcel, Jr., whose father uh, was base information officer at the time and caught right smack in the middle of this story. And he was our very first inductee. And his son accepted the award last year. Uh, Jesse, of course, uh, recently retired from uh, the military and at 70 years old finished out his uh, service in the Air Force as a uh, a field physician in Iraq. Uh, Extraordinary man. Well, we're uh, we're just about out of time here, Peter, but we definitely want to have you come back on before the event and, and talk with us more in depth about it. Uh, especially, I like the idea of these oldies concerts, but you got to get Question Mark and the Mysterians in there because uh, he is an actual alien, at least so he tells us. <laughs> well, um, last year we had the Temptations, and it was mind-blowing. Uh, you know, having like 20,000 people sing along with all those songs. It was great fun from start to finish, and the conference was terrific, and... Um, 
thank you on behalf of the good folks in Roswell, New Mexico. I hope a lot of your listeners can turn out, and I'll be delighted to return to the show before showtime. Excellent. Talk to you then. Thanks, okay. Peter. Right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. We're going to take a break here, and I think it was uh, I think it was the famous uh, rapper, the famous MC, Jay-Z Hynek, who said, ain't no party like a ufology party, so. Oh, we're on? Yeah. We are on. Oh, okay. I was waiting for the uh, the old signal. Oh. Or the theme song the, or something. Uh, yeah. Well, good evening. <laughs> good evening. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz, and uh, the end of the world is upon us, in case you're wondering. Uh, here on Spooky South Coast, we talk about the paranormal each and every week, and here's how we know the world is coming to an end. Lady Gaga has joined our ranks. She's now a paranormal investigator. So uh, that's pretty much the end of it for us. According to uh, a news story that was out there this past week, Lady Gaga spent more than $5,000 uh, to buy a ghost hunting specialist kit, including electromagnetic field readers. Uh, and she wanted to check out the O2 Arena in London where she was performing, and now she's going to be doing it everywhere she goes. So that's it. Good night. Thank you. No more Spooky South Coast because <laughs> <laughs> we're abandoning the field if Lady Gaga is in there. Seriously. It almost seems redundant. It, uh, it's it's kind of like, you know, people should be investigating her. That's why know, I'm saying it almost seems from. redundant. She may be uh, an inhabitant of a UFO, but we'll find out, because we're talking about UFOs all night tonight here, or at least for this hour, with our guest, D. Greg. And this is a really interesting story that came across my attention this week uh, about a UFO landing site in New Mexico. And when I was looking into... Uh, finding out more about it. Funny, usually in New Mexico they crash. Yeah, this way here they actually came in for a nice smooth one, I think. But uh, let's find out more with D, uh, because this is the person that we want to speak to about this. He has just published a new book, A Simple Explanation of Extraterrestrials, ETs, uh, and he teaches UFO and crop circle classes at New Mexico State University. He's published five research papers on decoding Euclidean geometric theorems and musical notes from crop circles. He's also written and published a song using only those notes called the Diatonic Crop Circle Song, and we'll play that a little bit later for you. Uh, Mr. Gregg is also a MUFON field investigator and the assistant director for New Mexico. He's an internal authority on anthropomorphic dummies and escape systems and a graduate mechanical engineer and licensed to practice as a registered professional engineer. And he joins us on the program. Good evening, Dee. Thanks for coming on. Well, hi, Tim. I'm certainly happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. Oh, you know, we're always glad to talk to, to somebody new uh, in the field and, and somebody whose brain we can pick. And I, I can tell you that uh, when, when I first found out about this New Mexico landing site, I wanted to send our science advisor, Matt Moniz, out there because he's done soil sample testing uh, on the Bentwaters case and numerous other UFO cases. And, and this is the guy that can get the, the stuff done in the lab. But it sounds like uh, they've got a pretty good guy on the case uh, in yourself. Uh, yeah, I have investigated the case. Uh, we have soil samples that might be something to think about uh, that have not been analyzed, which we did take at the site. Uh, I might be willing to take a peek. Yeah. Well, we could talk about that later offline. I hadn't uh, hadn't planned on talking about that, but, yeah, we <laughs> did have the soil samples. I, I have them uh, sealed and uh, put away at room temperature so that they are available to do that with. Excellent. So what exactly happened at this site? And, and it's, uh, it's actually on somebody's ranch, right? Yeah, what happened, the first thing that I heard about it is they told me 
we found a crop circle. I said, oh, wow, that's great because uh, I'm the field investigator for the International Crop Circle Research Association, and I wanted to zing out there. Uh, but as soon as I saw a picture of it, it was quite obvious it wasn't a crop circle, but it was a landing site of a UFO. And I know that through work of uh, Ted Phillips, who has analyzed has analyzed more than 4,000 landing sites called trace sites. And this one just fit one of his perfectly, and I took uh, pictures up, and he and I talked about it at Denver before doing the investigation. And, uh, yes, I'm very much sure that this is a UFO landing site of more than one UFO, and in the nesting area, uh, at least two different kinds of UFOs are landing there. So, uh, and this is on land owned by Judy Piper? Uh, yeah, Burke and Judy Piper. And and so uh, have they reported any type of craft? Have they seen anything out on their property? The only thing they have seen is they've had a lot of lights that they see there. And, of course, though, those are, are reported all over the United States. You know, there are more than 500 UFOs uh, reported every month to the MUFON UFO network. So uh, it, it's along that line. There, there hasn't been an actual craft reported there as there was in Kansas, which is where Ted Phillips did the analysis of the, the original uh, uh, landing site, which is how we know what this is. I'm assuming, uh, having never been there myself, but from everything I've read and seen, New Mexico's a lot of open sky, and you know there, there'd be plenty of uh, opportunity to see if something was coming in. So if this is coming in and landing, it must be doing so at a pretty fast rate to not be catching people's eye. Well, it could be that, or, you know, they have, uh, UFOs have the ability to appear and disappear. Mm-hmm. Our uh, light spectrum is fairly narrow, so what they do to become invisible is they go either uh, IR or UF, uh, and uh, then they're invisible because they we can't see those frequencies. So they can do you it either way. UV? UV, I'm sorry, yes. Ultraviolet or infrared, uh, and they can change their frequency to either one of those. Uh, and, in fact, that's how we track them with our satellites. We track with all three so that they can't get away. Uh, the military satellites track them. So they could land that way. Uh, also, remember, this is in the mountains and not in the wide-open spaces where I live in Alamogordo. Okay. Yeah. Now, what we need to do, though, is we need to make sure that when the – we were just talking with Peter Robbins uh, earlier on about the Roswell UFO Festival. Yeah. And uh, if these things keep landing – uh, I don't know how far it is from Roswell to Angel Fire, but if these things keep landing, we got to get all those ufologists that are going to be in town <laughs> that weekend to come by and check it out on the, before they go home. I, I think a better idea than that would be to have those ufologists, and some of them are, uh, to come to the Aspie Symposium, which we're going to have in September, the first weekend after Labor Day. Let me tell you something for your listeners, uh, so give them a heads up. I'm going to give the exact uh, coordinates of the landing site, and they need to if they like to find a pencil and paper, and I will give them the longitude and latitude latitude of the uh, landing site. Excellent. So just give them a heads up, and then I'll give it to them a little later when they've had a chance to get some a pencil and paper. And we'll watch Google Earth crash a little later on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, did I say Google Earth anyway? That's, that's what you do is you go find this on Google Earth, and, and I'll give the coordinates. Well, and, and you did mention that the uh, the ASPE Paranormal Symposium is coming up uh, September 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th of 2010 in That's Angel Fire, New Mexico. And we'll talk a little bit later on. We're going to give away a, a, a full registration package for a person there, so that's a great deal. Yes. Thank you very much to Janet Saylor, the director of uh, the Alliance Studying Paranormal Experiences, yes. for, for donating that. But we'll, we'll talk about what's going to go on there. But I want to talk about what you're going to discuss there uh, and, and it's it's part of it's also part of um, 
your your new book where a simple explanation of extraterrestrials, which is linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com, but you're going to be talking about the alien-human hybrid breeding program. Yes, that's what I'm going to talk about in September, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, this is something that's been uh, talked about for, for many years now, and we're starting to see some of these offspring, I think, of this uh, hybrid program, such as, as we mentioned at the top of the show, Lady Gaga. <laughs> well, I don't know. About I don't half know the of lady, Hollywood. I don't know the lady, but there are, there are hybrids who uh, are among us now. We don't know exactly how many. Uh, some of them uh, we can identify, and some of them we cannot identify. But uh, uh, this is, they're, they're becoming more of them uh, all the time. And I discussed this in the book, uh, uh, the hybrids who are posing as humans and, and I give a little hint at how you might be able to tell them. That's all in the book. Well, I'm assuming, though, that the hybrids are something that's a little bit more uh, closer resembling to humans than it is, say, maybe the the characters that surrounded the uh, the, 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 the Mothman prophecies case that Keel reported of these strange olive-skinned beings that kind of look like creatures posing as humans. I'm assuming whatever is being bred uh, is resembling humans more so than, than they did in earlier generations well yes uh what they do is they uh, uh they use the dna and to a fertilized egg and implant that in the female and from this becomes a, a hybrid fetus which they come back and at the end of three months they take the fetus from the womb and they put it into a an artificial womb and they grow it there and uh, the the initial uh, hybrid alien is a large-headed, very large eyes, could never pass as a human. It has been estimated it would take five generations before they could pass as a human. But, uh, you know, this is their first start. So uh, is, is their, is their uh, biology so similar to ours that they can do this? I mean, uh, we often hear about how they can communicate without using words and they use telepathy, but do they have the same type of uh, breathing system as us? They're oxygen-dependent? No, they do not breathe as as we do. Okay. Uh, it is thought they probably absorb through their skin. They're, uh, I'm talking about the little grays primarily now, and uh, they have just slits for, uh, for nose and mouth, which are not functional for either communication or food. They do communicate almost entirely brain-to-brain, uh, uh, -brain, although there is some. Uh, occasionally you'll have one who will be speaking to the person in English, or uh, they may write on a board, as they did with the Russian track driver, but mostly it's brain-to-brain. -brain. It's funny. I, I heard somebody saying once before that, uh, I'm not sure who said it, but they say that the, the thing that ruins communication most is words. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, well, maybe they have truly evolved it, if, they, if they don't need those to get into the way. It could be sometimes the uh, abductees say they hear them in the words in English, and sometimes... It's the observation in their their brain that they know what they want them to do. For instance, you know, take off your clothes, lie down on the table, uh, these kinds of things. Uh, that They communicate in both ways. So if they are infiltrating our species, I mean, what, what is the purpose of creating these hybrids? That is the very question that none of us know. <laughs> we know what they are doing, but we don't know why they're doing it. We know that they are, have a large... Uh, breeding program going. It has been estimated between several hundred thousand and up to 15 million people that are a part of this program. It's an enormous program, so, and it's it's a horrible program for the women who are being abducted. They're they are sexually, mentally, physically abused, 
and uh, it just ruins the lives of many of them, and that's one of the things I try to get a point uh, a part across in my book. And that's something that uh, definitely seems to be the more recent reports, uh, whether or not it was, it's been like this throughout history or not, but we are seeing an increase in reports of really negative experiences with these entities, especially on the part of these women. Uh, there was actually a, uh, a symposium here in the Bay State recently, uh, the um, Alien Abduction Experiences, Normal Science or Revolutionary Science, uh, that actually took place uh, with a university dean and a Harvard Medical School psychiatrist uh, being two of the speakers. And one of the people that was involved was uh, Susan Clancy, the Harvard-trained author of Abducted, How People Come to Believe They Were Kidnapped by Aliens. And she mentions that, uh, y- you know, these are a lot of the reports that we're hearing, that people are reporting these negative experiences with these UFOs, uh, with these aliens. Yeah, not everybody has a negative experience uh, with the aliens. Uh, primarily the ones that, that have, in my experience, the worst is the people who are being abducted into the breeding program. I, in my research, I've had several witnesses tell me that uh, they, they don't have any uh, negative experience with them. They, they have implants that the ETs communicate with them through their implants, and, uh, and they like this. Uh, that, that is different, though, I would say, than most of the experiences uh, of people whose lives have been ruined and they seek out to hypnotherapists to help them reconstruct their lives, and these people are, are hurting. We are talking with Dee Gregg, who is uh, a researcher of crop circles and other UFO phenomena. If you'd like to call in, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. You can email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com, and you can jump on the chat room at SpookySouthCoast.com as well. Uh, Craig and Mark and the group are all in there, and they're ready to help out in the discussion as well. But I almost wonder if, you know, a lot of these experiences that people have with these aliens are reflective of their personality. I mean, sometimes the ones who are reporting that they have a positive experience might be people who are trying to feel the need to be special, people who want to feel like they're part of something. And maybe the ones that are having the negative experiences are people that just wish they would go away and would never happen to begin with. I mean, maybe their personality is reflective of how they're treated. I don't have any research that would support that. Uh, uh, most people have a really negative experience, and uh, also males are, are uh, abducted because they need some semen to go with the egg, although quite a bit, uh, many fewer males are abducted than females. Uh, I don't know to what extent that... Uh, uh, people are having good experiences. Most of what I've read is is reflective uh, in the breeding program, and uh, it, it's really horrific experiences for most of these women. I can't imagine, you know, already being uh, already being taken by these uh, beings to begin with, and then to have them start conducting these type of uh, uh, operations on them. Uh, it's just mind-boggling to me. It, it's almost like. When you think about it, it's the worst possible form of negative experience that can happen to a woman because not only are you being taken, uh, but they're they're taking probably the most sacred part of your body. Yeah, I mean, they, they these are all gynecological pre- procedures we're talking about. They go into uh, the womb and implant uh, a hybrid egg, and uh, then they come back three months later and go in and cut it loose and put it into their 
uh, incubators, their artificial wombs, and then and grow the uh, fetus from there. And yes, this, this is a terrible experience. I know one one lady, one of my witnesses. They started with her when she was in her twenties. She just drove her to alcoholism. She's in. Uh, uh, she's about 64 now, and uh, she said they have abducted her at least once a month uh, for her whole uh, child breeding life. And uh, I asked her, what is it they do to you that's so terrible? And she couldn't tell me anything. So uh, then what she told me, she said, you know, if a person has Alzheimer's and they put their hand on a hot stove and burn it, the next day that hand will hurt, but they won't have any idea what happened. And he said, that's the way it is when they abduct me. It is so terrible, and I so dread it, but they erase the memory well enough that I can't tell what they did to me. It's a horrible feeling. And they have such a power to be able to do this and, and to determine you know, what you can remember and what you'll forget. And it's just when people get to feel helpless, I'm surprised. And, and maybe Matt Moniz, who's working a lot in UFO abductions, I'm surprised there isn't a higher... Uh, Suicide rate, mental illness rate, all these different factors with people who have been abducted. Uh, I, uh, over the years, and I've been doing abduction research now, what, 20-something years, and I've lost several uh, people that I've worked with over the years. They're very, very, very strong people, and I'm sure Dee will agree with me. These are people that, you know, more hardened than your average combat vet. These are survivor people, and yes. but not... Not everybody handles everything the same way. Some people along the way, they just can't take it. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate. Right. Well, what happens uh, is they do some memory erase, but we don't know how efficient they are. We know that they're not very efficient at times, and these are the people that we run into because they're having nightmares and, and anxiety attacks and depression, and they, they're the ones who show up uh, if they can find a hypnotherapist uh, and they need to know where to go. Uh, they're the ones that show up there and the ones that have had the hard time. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, oh, before I forget, uh, can we just back up a second? Let me sure. give the coordinates of the uh, Angel Fire site so that uh, I don't forget to do that. Sure. People with the, with the pencil and paper now, the, the location of the Angel Fire site is latitude 36 degrees, 27 minutes, 31.4 seconds. Latitude, I'll repeat that. Latitude, 36 degrees, 27 minutes, 31.4 seconds. The longitude is 105 degrees, 17 minutes, 8.5 seconds. I'll repeat that. Longitude, 105 degrees, 17 minutes, 8.5 seconds. And I have used those, and I found it with Google Earth, and they, they shouldn't have any trouble with that. Excellent. Well, we'll Thanks. definitely keep an eye on it because... Uh I know, you know, Google Earth, uh, if you believe the skeptics who say that the, the government has a hand in it, you know, they're going to wipe out any traces of the actual craft <laughs> when they actually land there. But it'll be interesting to keep an eye on the, on the property. Uh, now, when you're out and you're looking at these crop circles and you're conducting your research into them, uh, how often are you called out for one that you can pretty much tell is, is a hoax? Well, let me say this a bit. Since you said crop circles, let me tell you the significant thing about crop circles. In the state of New Mexico, there's never been a crop circle reported. Okay. 
Not okay. many crops out in <laughs> that's well, New Mexico. Well, hey, you know, it's not that we don't have crops. I don't know if people are just not attuned to looking at them. All up and down the Rio Grande Valley, you know, there are enormous uh, areas of crops where which would be an ideal place for them. They just don't seem to happen, and they seem to happen back in Ohio and Indiana and places around mm-hmm. there all the time. So I'm not sure why. Well, maybe the maybe because the uh, the UFOs know that in New Mexico they're kind of on to them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, as far as hoax. With uh, UFOs, now I'm a field investigator for MUFON, mm-hmm. and I have run into just two or three people that uh, it was pretty obvious that they were a hoax. Uh, uh, one of them gave us, uh, uh, let's see, he didn't give us a, he gave us an email, he gave us a telephone number that was wrong, uh, we couldn't reach him with the email, and the things that he had described that happened if they had actually happened, the military would probably, and he knew about it, the military would have probably been out and, and arrested him. But uh, as it turned out, uh, this was stuff that he was just making up. And this, this only happened two or three times, and I would say I investigate, uh, oh, once or twice a month, say maybe 15, 15 to 20 cases that I investigate, and through the years I've, I've just found a couple. Most people are pretty pretty honest about it. Many of them are really awed because they've never seen anything like this before. Uh, many of them think that, uh, wow, you know, that this is going to be earth-shattering, the government's going to be down on them if they report it, and uh, they think that this is something no one else has ever seen. And, uh, and sometimes I just, I hate to tell them, you know, that this happens more than 500 times a month. You know, this is what they're re- reporting maybe once in a lifetime to them, but it's, it's routine to the rest of us. Well, that's what's amazing to me is when you look back through a lot of the old newspapers, uh, and I say old, but you know, I'm only 32, so I'm, when I say old, I mean from the 60s and 70s, but when you look through a lot of these reports, you find a lot of stories about uh, UFO sightings that are later found out to be hoaxes that, that seem to happen quite a bit, uh, especially in the 70s and the early 80s, but now it seems when there's reports, they're, they're almost never hoaxes because I think... A, you know, people are so more connected through the Internet and, and through the media age, and, and B, there's less desire to hoax these things uh, as much as there used to be for the attention for whatever reason, maybe because people don't want to stand in the way of the actual events. Well, not only that, people are also a lot busier these days than they were back then. It's true, then. but you would think with the technology that we have now, and you could well, basically... Well, that's the whole point. Everybody's into their technologies, watching their TVs. and yeah, but you could to... create such a much better hoax than you could back in the 70s. True. What we have. I'm sure you could use an iPhone to make a crop circle these days. They probably have an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> if you can get to the crop circle itself, you can definitely tell hoaxes. Uh, there, there are things that humans can't do. For example, the uh, exploding of the nodes of the crops in which they have small holes in them because they've been heated from the inside. Uh, the nodes are elongated, and those are always in the circles, and they're never outside the circles. The explosion of the cell wall pits, the electron yeah. tunneling. Yeah, uh, yeah you, you can't Lefty Levengood and I used to do all of that work back in the 90s. Oh, you work with Levengood? Oh, yeah. I oh. worked with him back in 91, 92, and all of this okay. stuff was still okay. back in the day. Yeah, I mean, there's many other ways to find hoaxes, but that's a... That's a really good one right there is to look for the nodes. Well, D, I got to tell you a little bit about this guy here. He, <laughs> when he first came and joined our program, he gave uh-huh. me a resume. Yeah. And uh, there was like 10 years that were missing oh, yeah. on the resume. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all stuff that he couldn't really talk about, but at least now he's able to open up a little bit more about it. No, oh, back, back, back in the day, I was doing this stuff, you know, uh, early uh, 90s is when I really started. But... Uh, Back in the high school days in the 80s, uh, because I'm in my 40s. 
But uh-huh. um, back in 90, 91, I got involved with Colin Andrews and uh, all them guys out in England. And I, I was at the hoaxing competition out there and working with some other people. And some of the stuff I've seen in England is beautiful. And yeah. you're right. The the hoaxes versus the um, the what best can be described as genuine formations is night and day in most cases. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, 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 the researchers out there can find that. Uh, they can tell them. Uh, but the hoaxers have gotten pretty good. And uh, my feeling is that other than a few ufologists, uh, the people in England don't really care if they're a hoax or not. What they want is to keep... Well, uh, the farmers care. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Trust me, I, when I was talking to uh, one of the owners, I was at uh, Alton Barnes, um, Polly and her family, they're extremely mad because that's damaged crop. The people don't understand a, a crop circle of that size is a substantial uh, financial loss to the farm. Yes, it certainly is. Uh, some of those farmers recoup it from uh, charging admission, admission to go out to right. it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what I was primarily getting at is the people who, who run the uh, tours with the buses, the tours uh, that they fly over, people who make the calendars and photographs and there's, uh, you know, there's a cottage industry, industry there that my impression is that uh, they really don't care how they got there just so long as they come every year. That's just my uh, personal opinion of that. Uh, and and it, the authentic ones, they would just, uh, do you know Freddie Silva? I talked to Freddie Silva right after they came. you familiar with the Catherine Wheel? Yes. He, he was out there at the Catherine Wheel immediately afterwards. It had just rained five hours that night when it was being formed, and Freddie tells me there was not a single boot print, uh, nothing there. There's 409 circles over 868 feet, I believe it was, in diameter. Uh, and it, it, it was, it's one, It's the one that no hoaxer has ever claimed credit for. Um, a lot of hoaxers got burned on one particular uh, sting. Uh, uh, a formation was made and pronounced genuine, and uh, they claim to have made their, you know, with their letter to their their barrister there or whoever it was, their um, lawyer, that, you know, here's a copy of the formation that we sent to the, you know, post-stamped and all this. And then it was later showed that, you know, it was crop circle researchers that made it. So yeah. then all of a sudden, there, you know, all of this evidence that proves that they did it and is now, you know, out the window. So they they claim everyone, whether it's generally real or not. Most yeah. people don't realize that. Number two, everybody, everybody is uh, unaware of Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley's admission that they were put up to <laughs> to, to quell public interest. Yeah, their their retraction of their of their claiming to be is uh, uh, not well publicized. I teach Doug and Dave every time I teach the crop circle class. So yeah. And, in fact, I just was talking to a group just two weeks ago about Doug and Dave uh, when I was doing a, a lunch hour presentation. Very effective disinformation. <laughs> Certainly was. And people like Peter, Peter Jennings, who picked it up and carried it live on television, yep. they never, ever came back and corrected the era, even though it was known three or four days later that this was all a hoax. They were a hoax, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned the class, and, and you teach classes at New Mexico State University. It's fascinating to me that the New Mexico State University is uh, allowing for classes to be taught on UFO and crop circles because we need more of these classes in these higher uh, learning institutes, and it's just not happening. How did you persuade them to let you teach those classes? Uh, well, I didn't know if I could or not. So I, I wrote the book, talked to the lady who runs the program, and uh, she took it to uh, 
the uh, uh, board who approves these, and the only thing the board didn't like is I said, uh, UFOs are real, and they said, no, 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 you can't say that because that would be the university saying they're real. So we changed the name of the course to Investigating UFOs, and they've been letting me teach ever since. And is this an elective course? or It's a, 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 an adult education course. And this is where I'm going with the new book. See, I was teaching UFOs in crop circles, but I've now decided to uh, to come up with another course on extra, just on extraterrestrials. And the further I got into it, the more interesting I got into it. And so I finally decided, well, this is going to be for more than just the class I teach here. I want to do this for everybody and do a book out of it. And so that's kind of where we are right now and just got the books. Uh, I just got a consignment of them to sell uh just last week. However, anyone who wants the book can buy it right now through lulu.com. We have it linked right up on SpookySouthCoast.com, right oh, okay. to that Lulu site, too. Yeah. I got a question for you. Yeah. How much does it cost to take the course, and do you make any money teaching it? Uh, it costs $20, and I lose money every time. <laughs> isn't that always the case? You, you cannot think about You think of this as education, not about money. It isn't about money. I'd have never started it. That's the whole point of why I was trying to bring it up. People uh, assume that you know because you're doing this, you're making all kinds of money. No. Goodness, I, no. I, I hope to break even on my book. I'll be that uh, <laughs> optimistic. Uh, but, no, I speak. I've never taken any money for speaking anywhere, and that has been you know, the Aspie Symposium and... and uh, I speak around town here. I've spoken at, at Gallup and uh, uh, Angel Fire. And uh, anywhere I speak, uh, it, it's always uh, like at Aspie. I was just up there. Uh, well, this is how you found out about it. Was I was up there speaking about the uh, landing site. And uh, I get and don't ask for it, don't want anything for that. But they do use it as a fundraiser. So at 20 bucks a head, they made some money for uh, the Aspie Symposium in September. But, no, I take no money. I don't expect anything. I hope to break even on my book, but who knows. Well, we're going to take a break in a minute. But before we do that, let's talk about the Aspie Symposium because, as I mentioned, it's September 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th in Angel Fire, New Mexico. Uh, and uh, Dennis Balthazar is the master of ceremonies. Stan Friedman, who's been on the show, he's a special guest speaker. John Greenwald of the of Black Vault, and he's worked on a number of these paranormal shows that you see on television. He's a keynote speaker. Stan Romanek we had on the show. He has that outstanding alien film, which I'm sure he'll be bringing with him. Uh, Daryl Sims, Travis Walton from the Fire in the Sky case. Michael Horn, Chris O'Brien, of course, D. Gregg, who we're speaking to tonight. Paul Davids, Antonio Garces, uh, Tara Ray and the Blooming Bushwomen. Nancy DeYoung, Marissa Ryan, and Robert Javabal Schmaltzbach, who works with Tom Biscardi in the, the Search for Bigfoot. So it's a really good lineup of speakers there. It's It's... For something that's going on, uh, you know, in New Mexico, to have these UFOs uh, apparently landing there, and then to bring all these names uh, in for this event, I, I just think that it's a, a confluence of everything happening in, in just the right spot. Well, we sure hope so, and I hope a lot of people show up for it. Uh, you mentioned Daryl Sims. He's also known as the alien hunter. Yeah. Uh, he was abducted when he was four years old, and... Uh, uh, numerous times after that, and he's probably the world uh, expert on implants. Uh, and you mentioned Stan Friedman, who's the father of Roswell, and John Greenwall. Uh, John Greenwall also does, is a producer, besides the Black Vault, he's a producer for uh, the History Channel and some other people. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's really just an all-star lineup, and it sounds like it's going to be a great uh, a great place to go and learn more and to get together and share thoughts. And uh, Again, it's September 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th in Angel Fire, New Mexico. 
And if you want to find out more, you can go to uh, the ASPE website, uh, aspefiles.org. It's aspefiles.org. Also linked up on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. And while we're taking the break here, it'll be a quick one, but while we're doing that, uh, Janet Saylor, the director of ASPE, has been generous enough to donate a full registration package. It's a $199 value. It uh, does not include airfare or lodging, so you've got to get yourself out there and you've got to find a place to stay. But you'll get a ticket to all these great events, and it's being donated by ASPE. All you got to do is be the, the caller during the commercial break. And if, you know, a lot of our listeners happen in podcast and, uh, and people in that area might be listening on the podcast later on. And if we don't give it away during the break, then just email me, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, and the first person that emails me will get it as well. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more with D. Greg. I want to find out more about this diatonic crop circle song. And we're going to play that for you, and we'll talk to D about how crop circles can make music. So we'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. And if you want to call in, 508-996-0500, We'll be right back. Researchers pondered, measured, calculated, and drew. There was Colin, Pat, Busty, and Freddie Silva, too. But then, who knew? Finally, musical notes were decoded from the crop circles display. First by Gerald Hawkins of England, Wendy Gregg of the USA. So who made those crop circles? The devil? The CIA? A TV game show? Hoaxers? The military? Prince Charles? We don't know. Maybe it was a UFO. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, along as well. And our guest tonight is D. Gregg, uh, and we've been discussing UFOs and crop circles, and, and that was his song, the Diatonic Crop Circle song. And, and D., why don't you explain to people how that song came about? Uh, the original work was done by Dr. Hawkins. When he passed away, I took up his work. What it does is uh, it takes the smallest circle in a formation of crop circles, uh, divides it into 
its diameter or area, either one, into the diameter area of the other crop circles, and you look for integers, whole numbers. If you find them, then you put them into the formula for a diatonic ratio, which is which is 2 raised to the, the integer divided by 12 power. And then this will give you uh, even notes like 4 thirds and, and 9 uh, fifths and things like 9 eighths and things like this, which are the diatonic crop circle ratio, which uh, uh, when the octave was invented, I think, by Pythagoras some 3,000 years ago, I don't know how he knew that sort of ma- mathematics. But anyway, that's the way you come up with it. So it, it's a it's it's almost like when they l- make these crop circles, it's something that they're able to leave behind to communicate a little something to us. Well, they do leave musical notes behind. I <clears throat> I'm not sure why they do it, uh, and and I'm not sure as I point out to other people if they have messages for us. Why don't they just give them to us? You know, we communicate brain to brain extremely well. And they do this with a boy in Holland, Robert Vanderbrook. They communicate with him. They tell him when and where crop circles are going to be made. Uh, he has even uh, gotten one of them to materialize, and I have a photograph of that. Uh, it, it seems to me that the, there's easier ways to communicate than these elaborate crop circles. So it's, it's all still pretty much a mystery. If I had to take a guess, I mean, it would be that they're they're trying to communicate in this way because they want us to earn the communication. They want us to prove our worth and prove that we can figure it out. Well, uh, yeah, I, I really don't know. It's a puzzle to me. Well, still, I mean, to, to be able to take those notes and, and put them together into a song, I mean, that takes some, some skill on your own part as well. I did work pretty hard on it for quite a while, and my wife, Nancy, also was a musician, and she helped me with the song. She, In fact, she sings the song, and it's my voiceover on the song. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned some of the the researchers who have done a lot of the work in the song, and you mentioned some of the, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek, some of the theories of, of where the crop circles might have come about. Uh, I don't think that uh, Prince Charles is as musically inclined <laughs> as those who leave behind the crop circles. <laughs> yeah, right. But, uh, no, I mean, it, it, but it's, it's, a, it's a fun way and, and an interesting way to get people to pay attention to the idea of crop circles because here's something that they might tune out is, oh, you know, this is, it's a hoax, this is, it's just people messing around in a field, it's not. But then when you can show them that these diatonics do exist and that they can be put together and that there is a message, it, to me it's some of the, the best evidence to show to people that it is some kind of communication. Yeah, I, I think there's no question. It's a type of communication. Uh, I'm still puzzled as to what kind and, and why they don't do it more directly, but perhaps that will will come out in years to come. Who knows? There's there's probably some sort of language within them that we're just not able to crack yet. Some sort of, uh, I mean, eventually somebody's going to put them all together and say, oh, look, it's just an alphabet. <laughs> and, it, and it says, you know, lost. Mm. You know, it's, <laughs> they're trapped on our island and they're trying to get home. But, uh, it, it, I mean, if they are that much advanced uh, that they can do this, then there must be so much more that they could do uh, that we might find an easier way to, to realize what's going on. I mean, why crop circles? Why not uh, spelling out some other kind of message? Or, or why not, you know, landing in a different spot? Why does it have to be these crop circles? And why does it have to be something that, leads to so many questions and leads to so much speculation of hoaxing? Uh, 
uh, yeah. <clears throat> it's just not concrete enough, you know? Yeah, it, it seems like that, that they could use a better means of communication. You know, they, they, they're very far advanced. They fly UFOs at 6,000 miles per hour. They can, they can hover. They can fly straight up, appear, disappear. They turn at right angles. Uh, they have that kind of technology advancement. Uh, why would they need to communicate with us through something as, as uncertain as these huge crop circles? Why not, you know, just tell us brain-to-brain what they want us to know, but that obviously is not their way. There's another thought, too, is there are so many different types of uh, ETs. Uh, uh, Sergeant in the Army, Clifford Stone, I believe was his name, uh, was shown a, a loose-leaf notebook that showed 57 different varieties of ETs. Yep. And by the way, in my research, I turned up two more. I don't know if I mentioned that or not, but no. I have turned up uh, what I've termed the supergiants. Uh, giants before had ranged seven and eight feet and were fairly common for abductees to report. But one of my abductees reported uh, his uh, abductors, his face reached up about to their belt, and we estimated them to be 12 feet high, so we called them the supergiants. And uh, there's another, uh, several, the ETs sometimes come and play with the children, particularly little female children, in their cribs, and uh, we've pretty much established now that there is uh, what I call the mini grays, which are only 12 inches high, and this is all in the book, and I, I explain that. And those are two, two more types, which I'm pretty sure are not in the, uh, the original 57, so if you begin to think about that, maybe these people don't know each other or work with each other, or they're from different places, and, and they have different objectives. So that's, that's one reason I think that they might be trying to communicate that way through crop circles, whereas others like the little greys, they just communicate directly. That's uh, very interesting. And, and the book is titled A Simple Explanation of Extraterrestrials or ETs. Yes, it's, it is. It's available from lulu.com, and it's linked yes. up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. So if you if you click the little pop-up menu and you see Dee's picture and it has a link to the book, and that will take you right to the Lulu site so you can order it there. Good. And uh, it, I, I saw that it was a twelve ninety five. Is that the price of the book? Twelve ninety five is the price of the book, yes. So there you go. I mean, to get all this information for such a little price, you can't go wrong. And, you know, who knows, maybe someday we'll actually be smart enough to use the crop circles to figure out what they're trying to communicate and be able to communicate back to them. Uh, you know, maybe back in ancient times, those Nazca lines, they really were trying to, to have back-and-forth communication, and, you know, they're just waiting for us to go out and draw some more of those. Yes, it's, it's much of, there's much we don't know, let me put it that way. Well, hopefully uh, they keep landing out there in New Mexico, and eventually we can figure it out from there. Well, we uh, these sites are about, uh, they're less than two, year, two years old, the, the ones we first started out with. But the nesting site, uh, because of some of the vegetation that has started to grow back in the desiccated uh, rings, we think they may have been landing there for maybe three, four or more years, that they may have been using that for, for quite a while. And it's just it, it's amazing that they can do it so frequently and and have, you know, relatively little reports of actual UFO activity happening at the same time. It's just shows how advanced they truly are. They really are advanced. Yes. All right. So one more time, I'm going to give out those coordinates. It's latitude 36 degrees, 
27 minutes, 31.4 seconds, and longitude 105 degrees, 17 minutes, and 8.5 seconds. And uh, we'll put that up uh, on SpookySouthCoast.com with the description of this episode, too, so people can look it up, and, and maybe we'll put the Google Earth coordinates and uh, links and everything up there so people can download it. And It's amazing the technology that we do have. We might not be able to figure out... You know the uh, the UFO code, but at least we can figure out how to how to track things worldwide with Google Earth. So yeah, that, that's fascinating. I love Google Earth, and I've I've done that myself, and I've found the spot, and I I know where the little creek is right next to it, and the farmhouses and everything, and there it is, just exactly like it was when I was out there standing on the ground looking at it. And it's about more than just uh, you know finding your house, which is <laughs> what everybody does first. But yeah. It, and maybe, you know, if, if, if more researchers such as yourself can put the coordinates out there, when they do have these sites, it would, it would certainly make for a more uh, accessible uh, way for people to find them and to view them for themselves. Yes, and I think that's a great idea if people would uh, publish the, the coordinates. And I have not seen a lot of that, but I thought, you know, this is one thing I wanted to do. Initially, we didn't publish them at all because we wanted to give the privacy to the pipers. Mm-hmm. And after some months, the piper says, no, we think it's okay. So then at uh, the, uh, this was a Saturday afternoon uh, that I talked to the group. The pipers had said, no, you can give out the location. So that's the first time, uh, let's see, it would have been, uh, yeah, we could go today. It's the first time those have been known publicly. Well, he is D. Greg. He's a UFO and crop circle researcher. You can follow his work. Uh, if you go to the AS, the Aspie Paranormal Symposium, uh, 2010 Aspie Paranormal Symposium, September 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th in Angel Fire, New Mexico. For more information, go to ASPEFiles.org. And again, Lulu.com if you want to purchase a simple explanation of extraterrestrials or ETs. Dee, we had a great time with you, and hopefully you can join us again in the future here on Spooky South Coast. Thank you. I'd like to. All right. Give me a call. All right. We definitely will. Take care. Good. You too. All right. That'll do it for tonight's program. For Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. Hey, guess what, guys? Before I say it, next week and the week after, the Red Sox are playing in the afternoon. We're going to be here at our regular start time. So two full hours. Uh, So join us then. Until then, we want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to.